As Latter-day Saint leaders, we face very difficult conversations that put us at risk of saying the wrong thing that can do more harm than good. Many of these conversations relate to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Have you had a fellow board member come out to you about their LGBT identity? Have you had LGBT neighbors and you just don't know what to say to them, so you ignore them instead? Have you wrestled with balancing love for your fellow men while still respecting the doctrines of the restored gospel? In order to help, Leading Saints has put together the LGBT Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of the most popular sessions are available now to watch. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org LGBT. This is Curtis Reed, St. George, Utah. Just want to give a, a quick shout out to Kurt and the group, Leading Saints. That profound impact, I think, on, on a lot of people. Enjoy what, what you guys are doing. Appreciate all the content library. As Saints, we're all trying to uh, you know, just find our way in this world. And I think the more that we can collaborate on those things that matter, the more that we can see how the gospel can penetrate our lives, get into our worlds and make things better. There's always more to be and more to do. And I appreciate what Kurt and the group has put together. I appreciate the time and effort that's gone behind all of this. It's very valuable. Encourage anybody out there who's maybe a first-time listener to, to Leading Saints, grab a hold, get yourself invested in the library, and there'll be some things and there's some gems that you'll find that'll help you turn your life around. Appreciate all you guys are doing. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. I will be your host once again. Nobody seems to fill this chair but me, so I'll keep filling it. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, it's important that you know what we are. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we primarily do that through content creation like this podcast. We have a website that you need to go visit at leadingsaints.org. And there you can peruse all the other forms of dynamic content that we have around leadership principles in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. Now, this episode is a bit different. I have a co-host on this one coming up because uh, it's a collaboration episode, a simulcast, if you will, with uh, Faith Matters. Now, if you're not familiar with Faith Matters, well, put that on your agenda to go to faithmatters.org and check out the good content that uh, they're producing. It's a phenomenal podcast as well that you should subscribe to. And we have some upcoming exciting announcements as far as collaborations and and things that we're going to partner with uh, with Faith Matters. They're a faith-promoting, awesome organization. The more I get to get to know the people behind the scenes and that are that are running that organization, I'm just like, man, we could do so much together and uh, there's there's some exciting things coming in the future that you'll hear all about with Faith Matters. So Bill Turnbull is uh, one of the directors there at, uh, I, I don't know what, exactly what how he titled himself. He's just an awesome guy that's running a Faith Matters in a dynamic way. And so he joins me for this interview where we interview Thomas Griffith. Now, if you're a legal mind out there or a political junkie, you may be familiar with the name of, of Thomas Griffith. He is, according to his Wikipedia profile, is a former federal judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Before his appointment to the bench, he was Senate Legal Counsel, the chief legal officer of the United States Senate in November 
2011, Griffiths was included in the New Republic's list of Washington's most powerful but least famous people. And in his personal life, Brother Griffiths actually served as a state president and worked as the legal counsel at Brigham Young University from 2000 to 2005. He's a convert to the church. He joined the church, what does it say here, as a junior at Langley High School in McLean, Virginia. Did I say that right? Is it McLean? Oh, all you Virginians are, are yelling at me. And so he's a convert to the church, but has been uh, since uh, being in high school and served a mission and just a phenomenal individual, a legal mind. And we thought it would be interesting, both Bill and I, to sit down with uh, Tom and discuss President Oak's recent talk about the Constitution. As you may remember, in the April two, 2021 General Conference, President Oak surprised everybody by standing up and saying, I will now speak about the United States Constitution. And it was a dynamic, incredibly interesting talk. And uh, we wanted to talk about, in the context of that talk, uh, how it applies to maybe our religious experience as leaders, as far as when we have political discussions happening, how can we uh, unify a ward with maybe diverse political views, and uh, on and on, echo chambers and, uh, you know, things that the poison of social media and, and some of these things. So it's a phenomenal discussion, like I said, a little different than your typical Leading Saints episode, but it was fun to sit down with the people at Faith Matters and uh, put this together. So I'd like to thank Bill Turnbull for being my co-host on this uh, interview with Thomas Griffith. Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Turnbull from Faith Matters, and we are doing a joint podcast episode today with the Good Faith folks at Leading Saints. So we have That's right. Kurt Frankham on with us. And uh, we brought Judge Thomas B. Griffith, or Tom to friends, into this conversation because we're going to be talking about something pretty important that has implications to the law and politics and society more generally. So Tom, welcome from Virginia. Great. Thank you. Good to be here. Tom is a constitutional scholar, teaches at Harvard currently. He's just barely retired as a uh, federal court judge. He's been general counsel for Brigham Young University and general counsel to the U.S. Senate for a number of years. So that's quite a, uh, it's quite a life you've lived. Well, I've been lucky. Well, very fortunate. Yeah. And it's kept you on the East Coast for most of your life. Yeah, I'm a native, native Washingtonian. So we miss you. We don't, we don't see you often enough. But anyway, it's uh, brought Tom in to talk about this. I think he has some particular insights on this topic. We're talking about the address given by Dallin H. Oaks at the most recent general conference, in which he made quite a, an impassioned plea and then a, finished by making a bold statement or challenge to the church. And uh, the, oh, about a day after conference, I got a text from, from Tom, a text thread with some friends of ours, and I'm just going to read. These were the, the money, call them the money quotes, the money quotes from the Dallin H. Oaks address. So I think it's just why don't we start out and just read this and then we can kind of take this discussion where it needs to go. Listen carefully to this. It's remarkable. So he says, this comes from the Oaks, the uh, Oaks talk. He says, on contested issues, we should seek to moderate and unify. There are many political issues and no party, platform or individual candidate can satisfy all personal preferences. Each citizen must therefore decide which issues are most important to him or her at any particular time. Then members should seek inspiration on how to exercise their influence according to their individual priorities. This process will not be easy. It may require changing party support or candidate choices, even from election to election. I don't think a lot of people do that, to be honest. Uh, I think the, the more commonly is people identify with 
political party almost in the way they are, uh, identify with religion. In fact, there's, uh, I've, I've heard people say that political identity is the new religion, has become the new religion. And I don't think we're exempt from that, unfortunately, in our community. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I'll start with, uh, he's talking to me all my adult life. Uh, I've been a single party voter, Republican. When I became a judge, I no longer affiliated with the Republican Party. But so, so he's calling me to repentance. I need to think things through more than I have. Now, in my defense, during that time, I never thought for a minute that my views about the role of the state and politics were driven by my faith commitments. I, and I've always thought that was just a really bizarre idea because I have plenty of Latter-day Saint friends who are devout and fully committed who were Democrats, right? And so, so the thought never occurred to me that somehow, uh, you know, I was uh, representing the gospel better because I was, you know, voting for George W. Bush. I, you know what? That's just, that's just strange. So, but no, but I, yeah, but I'll go further than that. I'm a single issue voter, right? I'm a pro-life guy. That's always been the issue that's, that's motivated me. And so, President Oaks is saying, think about it, Tom, you know, think this thing through. So uh, I he gets a little more specific. I'm going to continue to read this, but he says such independent actions will sometimes require voters to support candidates or political parties or platforms whose other positions they cannot approve. This is one reason we encourage our members to refrain from judging one another in political matters. We should never assert that a faithful Latter-day Saint cannot belong to a particular party or vote for a particular candidate. We teach correct principles and leave our members to choose how to prioritize and apply those principles on the issues presented from time to time. And then this final, very strong admonition. We also insist and we ask our lo local leaders to insist that political choices and affiliations not be the subject of teachings or advocacy in any of our church meetings. And this is why we bring leading saints into this conversation, because this is what leading saints does. Leading Saints helps leaders at the various local levels understand and do their jobs better. They have conversations around just these kinds of things. And so, Kurt, does it sound like a challenge for Leading Saints to... Um, yeah, for like, sure. You know, because this is the tricky part. And this is where general authorities have, like uh, Pr President Oaks, have the impossible job of speaking generally to an international audience about very specific issues in, in a local area, per se. And so, you know, you don't expect them to get very specific on guidance. And so these are great points. But, Tom, my question for you is like, you know, oftentimes leaders feel like, okay, we've heard this great talk now as a leader. What am I supposed to do with it? Like, uh, you know, how can I apply this or how, how should this shift or change maybe the, the culture in my ward or stake? Any thoughts come to mind as far as how leaders can maybe, what, what leaders can take away from this and, and apply in their service? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, first of all, I'm loath to tell my leaders uh, what to do, but let's imagine I was a leader. Okay. Yeah. 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 That, so. Hypothetically. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Hypothetically. So I think the first thing is, uh, is it I, right? Right. Is it, look at me, right. Am I doing what President Oaks councils to do? Do I have those sorts of, and I've already confessed to you that yeah, it, it, the long bow that he drew hit me, right? Hit me. And so I think the first thing to do is each one of us, leader or not, members need to say, how, did, how does this apply to me? I don't uh, participate in the Twitter world, but I've, I've read some articles that apparently 
some people have characterized the, the discussion in, in Twitter world over President Oaks's talk was that every the too many people were saying, yeah, see, he's going after the other guys and, and, right, and, yeah. and not me and not me. That, you know, that's a human uh, failing, a human danger. And I think that's the first thing that we have to do is say, OK, how can I change? How can I be a better disciple of Christ based on what he said? So I think that's the first thing. Right. That's step yeah. one. I think, I think it's worth it's probably worth recognizing. And Tom, I grew up a Republican and I'm somewhat so all cards on the table. <laughs> My political views are relatively conservative. But um, so I felt like he was talking to people that I'm the, the problem seems to be. I think he's recognizing a problem that the church seems to be pretty rigidly identified with a particular political party. Well, that's been a long time concern of the leadership of the church. I mean, when was it that Elder Jensen, Elder Marlon Jensen, when he was in the presidency of the 70, was directed by the first presidency to speak to the Salt Lake Tribune in an interview in which he encouraged more Latter-day Saints to be Democrats, you know? And that was an assignment, right? Because it's just bizarre, right? It's just for folks on the outside looking in, they just assume Oh, you're a Latter-day Saint. You must be a conservative Republican, and uh, and that, and I think that blunts our uh, witness uh, to the world. It blunts towards our ability to do the types of good things we'd like to be doing throughout the world. So, so I, th- I this isn't a new thing. I think we're in a particularly polarized time, but I hear the leadership of the church urging been urging this for for quite a while. Yeah, but this polarization is really. Yeah, it's different. It's different. It's different and worse. Yeah. Let me talk about why that polarization exists right now. It's complicated, right? And you take sociologists, psychologists, and anthropologists to figure it out. But we know the symptoms of it, and maybe they're exacerbating it. And it's that, you know, we tend to be sorting ourselves by living with like-minded people who share our views of, of, of the world. And then we we get our information about the world from those same people. And then we talk to those same people and we don't, and and increasingly we don't have interaction with people who see the world very differently than we do, or when we do have interaction with them, it's hostile. Right. So those are all the symptoms of it. And and they probably exacerbated as well. Now, Kurt, when, when Tom and I were growing up and you're young, so you wouldn't relate to this at all, but there were like three networks and three news networks. You got your information through these networks, right? And they pretty much kind of agreed. There was a, like, they were, um, they were respectable to the sets of facts. I think, you know, they were responsible, considered themselves responsible journalists. And so we sort of had the same set of facts that we were dealing with as a country since media has become fragmented. And then particularly since social media, began media had and tom you can comment on this but cable news media and social media have really perfected the art of giving you that information that you already believe confirming your biases and then firing up your brain with news bulletins every 10 minutes that keep your brain the fear centers of your brain fired up and they create these, we've created tribes around these media echo chambers. And so I guess the, that first question you asked, or that you brought up, Tom, is it I? The first question you could ask yourself is, do I live in an echo chamber? So as a leader, do I live in an echo chamber? And if I do, am I missing 
do I might not even understanding the people that are in my congregation. Yeah, but but there's no question we've got this proliferation of media outlets. Many of them make no pretense of objectivity. That's not a good thing. This makes it work harder. But I, I don't want to say that the golden age was when everybody you know was watching Chet Huntley or Eric Severide or Walter Cronkite, and then we ought to go back to that. But anyway, but I'm with you on the the, the echo chamber. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. We have got to find ways to get out of it. I just want to say that I'm not in favor of going back to let's just have three white guys tell us what happened today. <laughs> right. Okay. Quite well, okay. yeah. Tom, I'm curious, just, I think where the, the dynamic that happens, you know, as mortals, you know, this world would be so much better if we weren't all mortals, you know, but uh, that is the case, but, and we deal with this thing called cognitive bias. Right. And so I think the tricky thing about, you know, these political dynamics in our religious culture is that we often look for and find connections to our bias in doctrine or in tradition. And therefore we feel promoted in some of these opinions we have. And so to me, it's, I think a lot of people hear this direction from president Oaks and think, yeah, great. Well, that's not my problem because obviously I follow doctrine when in reality, maybe some of those kind of biases are highlighting certain aspects of doctrine over others. Any, any thoughts on that? No, I I agree with you entirely. And it gets back to the, you know, is it I at the last supper? Am I the one? Am I going to be the one to betray betray you? And so that speaks to a sense of humility that that I certainly don't have, but aspire to, to be introspective and, and thoughtful and always questioning, always questioning my assumptions, right? And and you know, and Jesus, that's who the person of Jesus is. Now I'm not watching the chosen. I guess everyone else is sort of watching it, but oh, you're missing out. I, I, I'll catch up with it. I'll, I'll catch up with it. But I did see an advertisement for it that really struck me. And it's an interchange between, I think it's Peter and, and Jesus. And, and Peter says, wow, that's different. And Jesus says, get used to different, right? You know, that, that, that yeah, clip. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's the Lord we worship. He's challenging us. Get used to different. That's the ninth article of faith. He will yet reveal many great and important thing. So I think as, as Latter-day Saints, as disciples of Christ, there's a tentativeness about our views on these sorts of things. We always need to keep in mind, we might be wrong. We might be wrong. And so, and, and especially when it comes to political views, there's a great essay out there by uh, Hugh Nibley. And for my generation, it's like canonical. It's scripture. It's called Beyond Politics, uh, where Nibley, who was uh, an anti-Vietnam War Democrat, right, environmentalist Democrat, writing from that perspective, not necessarily from that perspective, but with that, with that background, talks about the role of politics for uh, disciples of Christ. It's a brilliant essay. And the takeaway, so you don't have to go read it. I would recommend anyone to go find it, but if you can't find it, it's online. It's easy to find. The takeaway, as I recall, is just be real tentative about politics, okay? Just be real tentative about that because that's not what we're here to do. We're here to build Zion. And if those two are ever in tension, no, forget the politics, work on building Zion. Now, we live in the world where the salt of the earth, we ought to be involved in trying to make our communities better and in, in, in politics, but we got to figure out a way, I think it's Latter-day Saints, to do it differently than the world has done. We're new to national politics, right? It's really just been since the 1950s and 1960s, and then really recently, the last 20 years, where we have been become major players on the national political stage. Uh, prior to that time, it was all Utah. We're new to this, and, and it's sort of like 
we don't have the self-confidence to have a style of our own in politics. And so we just sort of ape what the big kids have been doing for a long time, you know, what the Democrats and Republicans do. And I, that's not, that doesn't speak well. Which is really increasingly those you disagree with, you label them. It's not enough to disagree with them. You have to infer that they're somehow bad people or evil. Evil enemies to be destroyed. And, yeah. and, and then narratives develop around that. And since we don't have People create these compelling narratives. Often they get into things like conspiracy theories, which, by the way, the church just took another little stand kind of against. They're saying if, you, if you're following sources that are leading you to what fear, contention, conspiracy theories, you need to back away from those sources. Right. That was actually added to the church handbook. So I guess one of the, but, you know, everybody thinks, yeah, everybody's conspiracy theory is crazy, except the one that I believe in, right? So, because I've got all these great reasons, we get in these echo chambers and I see it all the time and you get this one line of thinking and it ends up demonizing an entire section of humanity. That's not what the gospel challenges us to do. So if we're heading down that road, we need to recognize that as leaders. I know both of you have been leaders, you've been bishops, Tom, you've been a state president. I'm really curious about how, you would, how you two would see this conversation. You see the challenge. I think we, we know what the challenge is. How would you see this conversation unfolding in a ward? Since Elder Oaks is clear in his language, we insist that this happen in our stakes and wards. Well, I, you know, if it were Bishop Griffith again, I, I'd get up and I'd read that language and then I'd expound upon it. And I would say, when you step into the foyer, no politics at all, not in your lessons, let's leave them out of the hallway conversations. Because as you're talking to your friend about your political views, someone else is passing by who has different views and that creates contention. I mean, the, the great symbol of our faith, in addition to the beehive, is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the way we administer that, right? And we pass it to one another. That's hugely symbolic. I mean, if, 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 I, if you're Roman Catholic, you, you, you receive the, the Eucharist from the priest, and that's hugely symbolic, right? But we, we don't do that. We get it from one another, which is a symbol, I think, of the way we're supposed to be inextricably intertwined with one another, right? It's a, it's a symbol that we offer to one another, the emblems of Christ death and resurrection. And there's just no place in that symbol for division, whether where it comes from any source at all. And so if I, you know, if I were a bishop again, I would give a talk about that. And I'd say, I'd put it in a part of a larger context of we're here to have our hearts knit together in love. We're here to, to, to that everything that we do in the ward should be a, an echo of taking the sacrament one to another. And, and here's some things that in our ward, we don't do, right? And one of the things we don't do, and President Oaks has told me to insist on this with you, we don't do politics in our ward. Once you step into the chapel, we don't do politics. You know, I would even go further than that. I would tell members, you know, maybe this is out of line. Maybe this isn't teaching correct principles and letting govern themselves. Maybe this is trying to govern is to say, if you're real active in social media and calling out political positions and using your the gospel as a source of authority for that, cut it out. It's not helping. You're dividing. You're making people in our ward feel marginalized. And when you do that, 
you're going counter to the experience we just had taking the sacrament and you're blunting our witness of Christ that John 17 tells us is the strongest witness we can offer is the unity that we have. So yeah, you know, I'd be pretty high-minded and, and direct about it, but maybe, maybe that would be crossing line. No, no, but no, the authority here is, President Oaks has said this, right? Insist. He insists that, that local leaders do that. That's strong language. Kurt, you related a, an experience you had. I think you were traveling in a, it was a southern Utah, and you stopped in, and yeah. we don't need to be too specific about where it was. What was your experience? Was- yeah, and just, you know, I've uh, generally grown up and lived in, in the Salt Lake Valley, which in Utah context is a much more progressive liberal area in the state. And uh, and so I'm I'm maybe used to being in that context and hearing certain things or especially in a Sunday school class, whatnot. And just one weekend I was traveling with my family and we stopped in a church in a much more conservative area of the state. And I was just sort of intrigued by what was being said about specific political people and things. And I, and I just <laughs> turned to my wife and said, wow, we're definitely not in Salt Lake anymore. Like this is, this is a different dynamic. And, you know, politics and churches is interesting. And, and I'm not really sure if I have a solid answer for, you know, that this, uh, or a solid response for this, but, you know, you think back uh, and you, you two remember it better than I, since uh, Bill brought up the age difference here for originally, but, you know, back when elder Ezra Taft Benson was speaking, you know, before he was president of the church and, you know, very clear where politically he stood, even to the point of really rubbing people the wrong way. And, and, but there, I think there's also a benefit of at least, you know, where the guy stood and then, you know, Hubie Brown would stand up and you sort of knew where he stood. And, and so I have to wonder if there's a danger in sort of getting to a point where we don't talk anything about our political opinions or perspectives, again, not necessarily in the context of Sunday school, but at least helping members understand and, and build the skill set of having conversations with people where you identify the differences, show empathy for those differences and move forward as a more unified body. I, I just, I just worry if we go too far where now you sort of hear rumors like, Oh yeah, I think elder Rasband is uh, you know, a, a lifelong Democrat or, but, but nobody really speaks in context of these differing political views, even though they wouldn't be really that uh, controversial. And so I wonder, you know, from a leadership perspective, if there's a way that we could encourage, again, not the hosting political debates within the context of a church service or Sunday school class, but encourage people to meet together, to discuss and, and even talk about maybe some skill sets they can do to, to talk through different opinions and walk away as friends rather than because right now what's happened, nobody talks in person. And then we go to our social media, put on our mask of anonymity or, or whatever, and just, and, and spew these quotes and things that sort of hit people the wrong way. And, and then we think, well, I'm, I'm going to stay back from that person at church because he's crazy. Right. And so to me, like it's a vacuum where social media has filled that void of like that political discussion is just so negative and, and nobody's better for it. You know, I'm with you on that, Kurt, except there's got to be a fundamental understanding. I think that my political views are separate from my religious views. And that, that's a hard exercise to go yeah. through, particularly in a, in, in a culture that believes in revelation and inspiration and consecration. So, so I would say, yeah, have those discussions, but the ground rule needs to be a fundamental understanding that as President Oaks just taught us, you can have widely divergent political views and be an active member of the church. No one political party or even one political set of views is somehow closer to 
the Lord's will than another. It's got, it's, it has to be done in that framework. You've got to take that off the table that, yeah. Hey, I, you know, I'm speaking for the Lord here. The Lord's really with me, you know? Right. right. Yeah. I and like then, that. Yeah. Because take, it's, that, take that off the table and then it's fun. And then it's fun. I, I, I want to hear. God does not have a, an opinion, a strong opinion about marginal tax rates, for example. I'm pretty sure he does. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he does. If, anyway. Which is not to say our faith shouldn't inform our political views, of course. It almost, right. it almost Well, here's how it should inform our political views, okay? Matthew chapter 25, right? Whatsoever you've done, the least of these, you've done it to me. My favorite quote comes from, I'm a political conservative, comes from Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, former budget director in the Bush administration, current chancellor of Purdue University. He said, in all things... Our first thought must always be for those on the first rung of life's ladder and how we might help them climb. So, yeah, I think the gospel does inform our politics in the sense that we need, we understand that the purpose of politics is to help the least of these. Now, we can have vigorous debates about how you do that, right? Yeah. Bring on the debates, but we shouldn't have a debate about whether society should be ordered and structured in a way to help the least of these. So I will, maybe, is that too political? Am, am I just, you know, so Jesus did live in this world, right? And he did start, a, his resurrection started a new creation in this world, right? We're, we're trying to build Zion here and now, right? How do you do that? It has real world implications, but I would say that's the gospel insight that begins the political discussion. Yeah. And so, and I, uh, Bill, can I just underscore something that, that Tom said? I really appreciate it. As far as the leadership context is one thing a leader can do is not just encourage people to leave politics, you know, outside of these discussions in church, but also to give permission, just, I think president Oaks did this as well. And, and you can be reiterated through local leadership, giving permission to say, you have permission to believe differently politically and that's okay. And you have a place here and we want you here. And, uh, you know, we'd love to get your insight on the gospel and, and we hope that the gospel informs your political decisions, but you have permission to believe politically different than the other person. And that permission could go a long way in the context of, of the local church. I think that's I think that's, that's a good point. I think it's important for another reason. I was just looking at some some statistics from the last election. Apparently, okay, this there's a real age division here. So if you have a, a you know a certain age, an older age that is just assuming a certain thing is you know a certain political view is is more associated with the church. You've got it. Let me read this to you. So if this is from Harvard's study of the 2020 elections. More church members under the age of 40 voted for Biden than for Trump. Okay, so there's 47% Biden, 42% Trump. Those, of those over 40, 80% voted for Trump, 18% for Biden. That's a pretty stark um, chasm between the ages. And so you run the risk, if you bring politics into too much, you run the risk of alienating a generation from a generation. And that's probably not even on our radar you know, that that's the case. So that and, and our evangelical friends are going through this moment right now as they see the, the, the identification with Trump, the Republican Party in general and Trump in specific has had a real negative impact on 
their younger younger members, and it's something that they're coming to to, to grips with, and a lot of self analysis of you know what's going on, what's going on here. That, that's a good lesson for us. And anytime a religion becomes too identified with a political movement, that's dragons be there. Yeah. Back to how you do this on the ward. So we got leaders now thinking, okay, yeah. so I'm supposed to address this in my ward or in my state. How should I do that? There's the option of discussion in ward council. You could do a fifth Sunday fireside on this, possibly when we get back to that. Maybe a letter. How would you, what are some ways that you would get this down to the end of the row in your stakes and wards? <laughs> the five million dollar question. So, so, so I'm, a, I'm a big believer in active state presidents and active bishops, right? Uh, taking a lead. And so, if I were, you know, a bishop again, as I said, I would take, uh, I would take sacrament, and I would take a half hour talk, and I would uh, drill down on this point, and I would wrap myself in the mantle of President Oaks, so that no one would think this is just Griffith on his own agenda. And I, that's what I would, I, I would yeah. take exactly reading time to do that. I like that. You know, one of the, the biggest like leadership mistakes that I, I claim is out there is that leaders often mistake an ability problem for a motivation problem. So they may see individuals in their ward thinking, man, aren't they motivated to do what President Oak says and not be so political? And, and why do they do that? And why are they, why is sister so-and-so posting on Facebook, you know, and, and this, it's not helping the ward. And, oh man, she just, she just put it in the ward Facebook group. Now, what am I going to do? Right. And the reality is, is it's not necessarily that they're unmotivated to be more kind or and not bringing their political views. Oftentimes they lack the skill and ability to do that. And so through, like uh, Tom said, a, a sacrament uh, focused talk or a fifth Sunday or whatever it is, focusing on the, here's some things you can do to better, uh, to better exercise the skill and practice it so that you can hear differing views or, or how or you can keep the politics out. Let me, let's talk about the difference of doctrine and, and political views or these things. So I think the more we focus on the ability component, it's going to help individuals, be more motivated because they'll have the skill set to do so. So when I was a bishop, it was a tiny ward. And you know, it was a weak ward because I was the bishop, right? So it was a, a, a tiny ward. And when we had big issues that I wanted to talk about, what we would do is when sacrament meeting was over, we would just have everyone stay and we'd call it a ward meeting. Everyone just stay in the chapel. <laughs> Primary is going to be later. Sorry, the kids are going to be noisy. We get it. But we're going to stay for the next half hour and we're just going to talk. And I'd come down off the stand, I'd get a chalkboard up there, and it would be like a town hall sort of meeting. And yeah, uh, they, they, they worked really well. I mean, people aren't sort of used to that sort of format. So maybe that was, maybe they, maybe, maybe they like that part of it. But I found that it allowed the bishop to get in the role of, of a teacher and to, to have sort of discussions. So am I thinking about it? I, maybe I wouldn't do a separate meeting talk. I do one of these ward meetings in the second hour to talk through this important instruction that's been given by President Oaks. Yeah, I love that. I think he goes with the principle. I think more most people would rather have a seat at the table than to be preached to, right? And and sometimes yeah. in context, there's it's appropriate to have that dynamic of preaching. But yeah, creating a forum where people can raise their hand and say, "This is how it impacts me," and this is maybe something we could do. And and getting that uh, you know the town forum there. I love that idea. That's great. And in that process, the other part of that exhortation from Elder Oaks is is to show um, charity and be open-minded toward others. We have to, if we can't model this as a church, getting out of this demonizing people who don't agree with us, 
if we fall into that trap, that is yeah. a trap that the world has fallen into and we can't fall into that trap. And, and, and Bill, let, let, let me just say, you know, this runs both ways, right? I mean, you know, there are people, members of the church who cannot understand how any member of the church would vote for Donald Trump, right? They believe that. Well, you know what? That's not a very generous view, right? They need to understand why good, reasonable people voted for Donald Trump. They need to understand that. And, it's, and if they can't do that, if they haven't exercised that level of empathy, they're not doing the hard work that's necessary. And, and, and on the other side, the MAGA folks need to understand why you know, a good member of the church could vote for Joe Biden. That's an act of empathy, but we're called to do it by the covenants that we make. And now by somebody we sustain as a prophet, seer, and revelator told us we got to do it. So it works both ways. It has to work both ways. Yeah, it's got to work both ways. Absolutely. Dom, I'm just curious, especially with your career and the different circles you've been in, you know, in politics and, and on the East Coast and whatnot, how do you stay out of your echo chamber? How do you uh, expose yourself to differing views to, to consider some of these things? Yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it takes work, but I try and read lots of different sources, right? Every day I read the uh, New York Times, Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and then I read Law and Liberty, public discourse, you know, on the right. And just try and try and see what other people are thinking about. Now, you know, when I read public discourse and law and liberty, that's when I get the warm fuzzies and, oh, I'm right about everything. And then I read the editorial page, of the New York Times, and I think, oh, how can people be so, no. So you have you try and do that. Now I have, is this an advantage or a disadvantage? So I used to be a Democrat. I worked for Mo Udall, Democratic congressman from Arizona, almost president of the United States. I was a liberal anti-war Democrat for until, uh, I was joking earlier with Bill, until I learned to read. No, until my mid-20s when I, Jack Kemp uh, persuaded me to put through his writings, speeches, that the party that would help folks on the margins most, I thought, was the Republican Party. So I made that switch. So, so because of that, I've never been able to demonize Democrats because hmm. I was one and I had lots of friends who were that way. And same way, I'm also a convert to the church. So maybe I'm an unstable man. I mean, but I was raised as an Anglican, joined the church when I was a junior in high school. And because of that, I've never been able to demonize other faiths, right? These are my people, right? And they're not bad people. They just have different views than I do. They may be right in a lot of things, and I may be wrong in a lot of things. So anyway, but it, it takes work. I'm at a stage of life in a position where I have the time it's easier for me to do that than, you know, a young mother of three or four kids who's trying to do lots of other things. She doesn't have time to read all the things that, yeah. that, that, that I do. And so I, I get that. It's hard work. Questioning your own assumptions is a, is a big one. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, we may end up cutting this. So I'll just tell you. But <laughs> uh, right before the election, I think it was the day before the election, we got a message from a friend um saying and it was uh oh no it was not before the, this this was just before the inauguration actually just before, so the election had actually occurred we got a letter from a friend on um it was a facebook message and this is she was quite um animated about the fact that the election was going to be overturned and she this is, this was going to happen and she's we, we kind of said you mean it's you know there's going to be a march on the capitol they're going to overturn this election Absolutely, it's going to happen. And, and she was in favor of that? or She's in favor or, of that, actually. Gotcha. This is a friend of ours now, okay? And 
you know, we pushed back and she kind of doubled down and she sent us a video. She's um, of it was a video. It was quite carefully made video that that basically the message was laid out the case for Mitt Romney being part of a global conspiracy to destroy our freedoms and any number of things. And the way it did that is it showed that his firm, Mitt Romney's firm, which is Bain Capital, had invested in companies and these companies, Monsanto Chemical and others. It was a, it was a ludicrous presentation, but presented in a way that could be persuasive if you didn't really know, right? And she was, she said, these are the facts that you need to know about. And that, I think it was that very day that Mitt got assaulted in the airport on the way back to Washington, D.C. And I just, I looked at this and this, this terrible, you know, this Bain Capital. I, I don't know Mitt. I, I, do you know Mitt, Tom? No, no, I, you know, I've met him, but we're, yeah, same, but I don't know him all. But I do know a good part of the senior management at Bain Capital because they left Boston eventually and, and settled in Utah. And so one became a business partner of mine and he was an original Bain Capital investor. And one was when I was, it was in my ward, I was a young men's president. He was our uh, scoutmaster. These awful people that have conspiring to destroy our freedoms, right? And one was my son's mission president and is, and is now serving as a member of the presidency of the 70. And I know those three guys really well. And I can tell you, I can vouch for all of them. They're wonderful people. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, even a member of the church is putting, is sharing widely with other members of the church, this, you know, like, it, it's not, it's not that she just disagrees with them. She's going to make sure that everyone understands that they're evil. And this is the kind of thing that we just can't, that is so inimical to the gospel of Christ. We have to do better. We have to check ourselves. We have to fundamentally question our assumptions. And I think that that's what well, and, and a similar vein. So I'm, I'm a product of Washington, D.C. I'm a product of the swamp, right? I went to school with the sons and daughters of the deep state. And let me tell you about the people in the deep state. Best people I've ever met. Well-educated, patriotic, love their country, serving their country. They could be making a lot more money elsewhere but they want to be working in government because they love the United States of America and what it stands for. Best people around deep state. Listen, I, you know, sorry, I, I, when did you start using that deep state term? It's a, it's a, I don't know. I don't know. It just sounds so sinister, you know? And so, uh, yeah, no, there isn't a conspiracy that's running the government of the United States. It's just not, it's just not. So it's a complicated entity, lots of interests, good people, bad people, any, any mix. When I was the counsel for the Senate, I got to know 100 senators pretty well, you know, some much better than, than others. And I would often get asked, so what's it like to be the counsel for the Senate? And my response was, you know, there's like any other group of 100 people. There's some who are really smart. There are others less so. There are some people who live saintly, holy lives, others less so. One thing in common is they all see the president of the United States when they look in the mirror in the morning, the future president of the United States when they look in the mirror in the morning. But other than that, they're just like, uh, they're just like the rest of us. And um, so, yeah, so I, the conspiracy theories have never held purchase with me when they start talking about things that I've had some experience with and just doesn't work.
That concludes our interview with Thomas Griffith. A big shout out to Bill Turnbull for being my co-host. Or I should say I was his co-host, right? We were co-hosts together. Really fascinating discussion with uh, Thomas Griffith. Uh, hopefully this is uh, the first of many conversations we can have with him and it's fantastic legal mind and, and fantastic leadership mind. There's so much that he's done privately in his leadership experience that I'd love to dive into maybe another time. But uh, I would love to get your feedback. What were your impressions of President Oak's talk? What How's it changed? What things are you trying? Are you trying a fifth Sunday lesson? Are you doing a sacrament talk? I mean, how are you unifying the ward who may be silently disunified, right? Because of different political views, or they just sort of smirk at each other or, 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 or growl each other through Facebook and it gets kind of heated there. How can we better approach this topic of politics without uh, poisoning the, the gospel discussion that we go to church to find. So we'd love to hear from you. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. And if there's any other angles or topics uh, in this world, I'd love to hear it. Maybe enriching the content we hear at Leading Saints. And don't forget, go to faithmatters.org and check out what they're doing. Subscribe to their podcast and you will be blessed with uh, some of the content you hear there. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three free sessions of the LGBT Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.